Matthew chapter 11, 20 to 30. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have represented long, repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hi, how's everyone going? Can you hear me okay? Thank you so much, Ella, for reading that. It was so good to hear a bit of your story. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of us can resonate or relate to how following Jesus can be a sacrifice. Um, it can be a challenge. Um, but I'm so glad to know, um, yeah, a bit more of your story. Thank you so much. Uh, good to see everyone. Uh, I'd love to pray for us. Uh, but before that, um, just a reminder that uh, we have been going through the series uh, through Matthew's gospel. Uh, if you have missed out a week or you just, it was just too hard to focus, uh, fear not, uh, take heart, have courage uh, and, and go on Spotify and you can catch up on, you know, a sermon that you missed out on. Yeah. And so we'd love to be able to just uh, encourage one another, right. As um, Venus prayed earlier, as this, as the day of Jesus return uh, draws nearer. So uh, I commend that to you. Um, and how about let's uh, pray before we uh, have a deeper look into this passage that Ella read for us. Uh, would you pray with me? Our great God and Father, thank you so much for Jesus. The fact that he represents you, he is um, your image, your glory. Thank you so much that where we would not be able to know you at all because of Jesus we can know what you're like. Thank you for revealing him to many of us. And Father, many of us are weary and burdened. Help us to find rest for our souls in you today as we hear through your spirit, from your word. I pray all these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. I'd love to uh, try uh, get you guys to all imagine uh, that 
that Cheryl, my wife, uh, has been sending me messages, right? Uh, one of them says this. Um, hey, can you get two cans of tomatoes, beef mints, frozen peas, and a block of cheese? Thanks. Sounds fairly straightforward. All right. And now imagine if um, Cheryl sent me a message like this. Hi, I'm stuck in Scotland and my ATM card stopped working. Can you help me call this number? Thank you, sir. Now, I want to ask you, all right, this is an IQ test, obviously. Which one is the scam? Um, feel free to type it in chat or just shout it out. Um, the first one, obviously. Thank you, Vincent. Obviously, you know my wife very well. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's number two, isn't it? Um, Any one of you who knows Cheryl knows that she doesn't like Scotland. It's actually Finland. And that's not her actual number anyways. So it can't be number two. Um, yeah, so that I think that would be the scam. How about this next one, though? Which of these texts would you trust? I'll put them up side by side. You know, one is pretty clear, you know, says, this is your net code. Don't show it to anyone else. And then the other one says, warning, your account has suspicious activity. Urgently visit this link. Which would you pick as the scam? And which would you say was legit? Maybe you'd struggle a bit more, but maybe if you knew your bank well, you'd be able to sniff out the scam, right? And I think even more so, if, if you know Jesus well, you will be able to tell when you've fallen for a scam about Jesus. Because I've been thinking about this week. I think most of us have had to encounter or have been presented um, scams about Jesus before. I mean, I think I know most of us have heard the facts about what he's done. We have all kinds of things that we know of Jesus. You know, he, he lived on this earth. He died on a cross for our sins. He rose again. I mean, we know what he's done. But who is Jesus? What is his very nature and being? You know, if you could kind of peel under his skin, what would we see? And I think if we're honest, I think a lot of us would find it quite hard to ask, uh, answer that question, right? Who is Jesus really? And perhaps, perhaps when we don't know so well who Jesus is, what his heart is, we might fall for scams about him. I don't know if you've ever fallen for the scam. Maybe you've fallen for the scam that Jesus is kind of like my not one, one, one operator. You know, I just call him when it's an emergency, but you know, I don't really have a relationship with the person on the phone. When I call one, 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 I just talk to them for what I need. Right. I wonder if that's the Jesus you've fallen for the scam Jesus. Or what about the Jesus is my tiger parent scam. I don't know, maybe uh, you've lived in a, a household where you've been hearing do this or obey this or don't do this all your life. And, and so your picture of Jesus is kind of like a, an angry parent, like a rubber band about to snap. Maybe Jesus seems to be like someone who's about to spoil your fun or who scolds you when you fail, who is just one wrong move away from walking away from you. I wonder if you've fallen for that kind of scam before. 
Well, I think we have to thank God then for his wonderful word, because in this part of Matthew's gospel, in this, these beautiful words, we come face to face, I think, with the real Jesus. I think here he speaks directly to all of us who are weary and who are burdened and who are tired. All of us who have fallen at one stage along the way. Here is the real Jesus in this passage. And I think if we get to know this Jesus and this Jesus alone, then I think he will help us to stand up against the other scams and we won't fall for the other scams about Jesus. Now, did you know out of all four Gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitness accounts, there's 89 chapters of text. So that's a lot of text to go through, right? But out of these four Gospels, it's this passage here, right? Matthew 11, 20 to 30, where we find the one and only time when Jesus speaks about his own heart. Did you see that when Ella read that? Okay. In verse 29, for I am gentle and humble in heart. No other place in Matthew's gospel or anywhere else do we hear that kind of statement. So I think there is no better place to encounter, to, to look for the real Jesus than this passage here. And maybe Jesus has been your constant bubble companion uh, this lockdown. Or maybe right now he feels as distant as squares on a screen. But here, Jesus says, Come look beyond my profile pic. Come and discover who I am. Come and see my heart for you. Um, so let's dive in. Let's dive into this wonderful passage. Before we do that, I want to clarify briefly uh, what the Bible means when it says heart. Okay, so uh, when we watch a lot of rom-coms and K-dramas, um, the term heart uh, feels like, you know, romantic, soppy, uh, or if you're a medical person, the heart is a, is a four-chambered muscle that pumps blood through your body. Uh, in the Bible, the heart, when it talks about the heart, it's referring to something more abstract. It's more the real you, the core of who you and I are. Uh, that's what the Bible means when it talks about the heart. What defines and directs you? For example, Proverbs can speak about the heart being the wellspring of life. It's not talking specifically about a part of your body physically, but the real you. And so this is what Jesus is doing here. He's not talking about a part of his body. He's talking about who he really is. When Jesus reveals his heart, what drives him? What is it? What is most true of him? I think in this passage, we get three different looks into uh, the heart of Christ. And we see it in our passage. Uh, we see firstly from verses 20 to 24, a heart that shames the unrepentant. And then later on, we see a heart that knows the Father's will. And finally, a heart that is gentle and lowly and offers rest to the weary. So we'll walk through each of these points uh, briefly. And so... If you're the note-taking type, feel free to, to jot something down or we'll type it up on your screen. Um, yeah. Let's, let's, let's look firstly at, at the heart of Jesus. Here is Jesus who, who shames the heart of heart. I wonder when you heard uh, those names of cities being judged, what you thought. What did you make of Jesus uh, denouncing the cities here in verse 20? Uh, surely God is love. He is. 
But here we see straight away the love of Christ is not a mushy, romantic song kind of love. You see, Jesus, he is tender. He is gentle to those who see their need for him. And yet he is stern and strong to those who reject him, isn't he? And we've seen this. We've seen this through the series, right? All through chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel, we've seen a man like no other. I mean, right back to Matthew 8, chapter 1, remember that large crowds followed him. And then when he camped out at someone's house, many who were demon-possessed, they were brought to him. And sometimes he left the crowds, though, to get to certain people, right? Like the men in the tombs, like, like Jairus's daughter. Other times he finds them. Jesus actually went through all the towns and villages, right? Matthew 9.35, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And yet as he did all that, something happened. Well, actually, maybe we could say something didn't happen that should have. And verse 20, Jesus tells us, Jesus began, it says here, to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. They did not repent. And so firstly, I think the first thing we realize is that Jesus, he has a very different heart towards those who reject him. It's particularly those who reject him despite seeing his mighty power at work. Uh, Jesus is, he's not like a dog who's going to wait and wait and wait as his owner um, abuses and mistreats him. That's not how he works. Think about it. The crowds of Chorazin and Capernaum, these are all the villages that Jesus was ministering in. They got to see living proof that Jesus had God's authority to heal, to save. They got, they got the VIP access to God's himself through Jesus. And yet they did not repent. They did not turn from where they were going and start following him seriously. And we also need to remember, though, that this is actually not his first reaction to the crowds in Galilee. Remember, the first thing that he felt towards them was not denouncing them. The first thing he felt towards them was compassion. So remember, that's a starting point. Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, so we want to hold this in balance. But imagine this. Imagine a shepherd risks his life to climb down some cliffs for example, to pull a, a lost sheep from disaster. Imagine that. Imagine that he, he carries and nurses a, a weak and, and dying sheep back to life after it's been attacked. And then imagine that sheep then going down that cliff again, wandering to the walls again. Or imagine a doctor who comes and saves a whole town from from a poisonous water supply. But then as soon as they're healed, as soon as they're out of you know, their sick beds, they head straight for the deadly water again. Jesus is saying, woe to you for not repenting. It's almost the opposite of what we heard from John the Baptist last week, right? Um, we heard from him, blessed are, um, when Jesus talked to John the Baptist, he said, blessed are you, are those who don't fall away. And now, though, he's saying the opposite. 
woe to you for not repenting. And Jesus, he points out that if, if Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, these were cities in the Old Testament uh, who experienced God's judgment. You can read it in Ezekiel 27 and 28, uh, for example. If they could have seen Jesus himself at work, they would have repented. When more is revealed, more is at stake. When more is revealed, more is at stake. So I don't know how we feel about this, PCBC. Some of us have heard the good news of Jesus many, many times. Maybe some of you have grown up in in Sunday school, right? Heard all these truths. The Bible says that the key is not how many miracles you've seen, how many truths you've confronted about God, how much church you've done, how much of the crowd you've been a part of. The Bible says what counts most of all is whether you have repented or whether you did not repent, whether you have turned and trusted Jesus or whether you are still going your own way. And it seems like those who have tasted his grace and then rejected it, they they actually are worse off than even the city of Sodom. Friends, that is a terrifying place to be. Woe to us if we have seen and experienced the miracle of of a a true Christian community, but then we reject the Jesus who makes this community and dies for her. I think woe to us if we have friends who we know are Christians who radiate Christ's love and yet we refuse to follow him ourselves. Woe to us if we know Christ died for sinners like us and yet we refuse to lay down our lives and follow him. I think from this part of this this part of Matthew, we have to be clear when God shows up, none of us can be neutral about him. I think with God there is no ticking interested, or maybe later, we either say yes or no to following Jesus. Uh, either he is Lord of all or he's not at all. And it is either heaven or hell. That lies before us. The Bible says the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He forgives the wicked. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So don't be caught by a scam. Here is Jesus who shames the heart of heart. What do we make in the next section then? Uh, let me read this next section for you from verse 25. It says this, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. Uh, notice who truly sees, according to Jesus, Right? It's not the wise and learned. Uh, That's not a dig against those of you studying for exams and assignments. Look, uh, when he talks about wise and learned, he's referring to those who were the religious leaders who knew their Bibles inside and out and yet failed to recognize that Jesus was the promised one and then even oppose him. And we hear more about that in the next few weeks. These 
these leaders, they, they saw the truth about Jesus. They could not deny who he was, and yet they don't follow him. Whereas the ones who do follow him are those who are kind of like children in their faith, who have a childlike trust in him. You think about the woman who bled for 12 years or, or the paralyzed man and his friends. These were the kinds of people who, who came to Jesus, right? But in verse 27, Jesus reveals something more about himself, his own heart. Have a look at verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Friends, here is Jesus who knows the father's heart. Here is Jesus who knows the father's heart. I want you to think about it. Think about how bold Jesus saying something like this is. You know, back in his day, right, he lived in a time when people believed in all kinds of gods around him, right? Um, the nation of Judea was a Roman colony at the time, and the Romans believed in all kinds of gods. The, the Jewish people, they believed in, in one God. And then here comes a first century itinerant preacher who says, I know God and no one else knows him. That's essentially what he says in this verse, right? And I wonder if you've ever heard uh, John 14, verse 6. Jesus, he gives a similar statement. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This kind of Jesus is the only way message, it, it, it runs against the message we normally hear in society today, doesn't it? Perhaps you've heard um, uh, this from non-Christian friends or family. You know, just go and believe in your God. Uh, I'll stick with mine. You know, what's the problem? Or maybe some of you who have non-Christian parents, they've told you, it's okay. You believe what you want, but that's not for me. Or maybe you've met someone who actually has said to you, well, all gods are the same. You know, they all lead to the same place. What you believe, I think I can see that in what other people believe too. That's okay. So how do we, how do we respond to something like that? Is this true? I wonder if you've heard the story of the elephant, uh, the elephant that walks into a village. And in this village, apparently everyone is blind. And so one villager touches the elephant's leg, you know, and says, oh, this elephant's kind of like a tree. Uh, another touches the elephant's ear and says, ah, oh, this elephant is like a fan. And the atheist maybe misses the elephant with their hands and say, ah, oh, there's no elephant here. All these people, because they were blind, they could not see the whole elephant. And so, so the story goes, that's what religion is like. All right, so maybe why don't we just learn from each other? And that way we'll get more of the truth about God that way. Have you heard that story? Um, have you heard that told before or a version of it? But here's why the elephant story doesn't work. First, the story begins with an assumption, right? It assumes the storyteller can see everything and the, the villagers can't. So actually to use the story, you're actually saying, Everyone else is blind and I can see. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I could say that. 
And I don't think that would be very right or respectful. And secondly, I think the story cannot explain why people might change their religious beliefs. How do you explain how someone becomes a Christian, for example? Uh, when we do that, we're saying what we used to believe wasn't true, right? And then one more issue is that different religions, I think at the end of it, they don't see things as part of the same animal. The more you hear what they describe about who they believe or what they believe about God, I think they describe different animals altogether. But what if instead of sending an elephant, God sends himself? What if God writes himself into our world through the incarnation, through the word becoming flesh and living among us? Jesus. Jesus who can open our blind eyes to see, who can calm storms, who can heal broken lives, who can teach with authority, who can draw some in and drive others away. Jesus who forgives sinners. If our question is this, can we truly know God? Jesus's answer is right here in verse 27. Yes, but only through me. And friends, if this is true, then it would be foolish to go to anyone else to get to know God, to know him deeper. There are thousands of experts out there, right? You can just Google an answer to your question, whether it's how to uh, make um, uh, cake in lockdown, whether it's how to fix a broken washing machine. There are teachers and YouTubers. There are TED Talk presenters. There are people with lots of titles in front of their names. Some may help you. Most probably many won't. But to truly know God, Jesus is who we ultimately must turn to. Um, some people get curious about this verse. <clears throat> they, they, they look at it and they go, oh, who does the son choose to reveal himself to? Uh, here we talk about an issue called a predestination. And for some people, this is a really difficult topic. Please don't get hung up about whether the son has chosen to, to reveal himself to you or not, as it, this verse seems to indicate. Because we know from the very next verse here that Jesus is not trying to be selective in choosing who knows God and who doesn't, right? Because what does the very next verse and this very next point tell us? Have a look. Verse 28 says this, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Here is Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart, who invites us to find rest in him. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's one thing, right, to describe um, maybe what your boyfriend or girlfriend's height is or their hairstyle, what their work habits, their favorite game, their Myers-Briggs. I think it'd be much harder, but more important to describe and try and get what their heart for you is like, right? Surely if you're, if you're someone who has a girlfriend or boyfriend, you, you don't want to just know facts about them. You want to know what their heart for you is like. Right? So it is with Jesus. 
First, notice his invitation. He says, come to me. He invites us to, to come to him. For all his authority and power, no king in this history of the world is as approachable as King Jesus. I mean, think about it. If you want to speak uh, to an MP, you probably have to find out uh, a form and fill it out or find some way to get in touch, book in with his assistant or her assistant. If you want to go see Jacinda, our prime minister, you probably have to get past her security guards first, right? Her DPS, her protection squad. Not so with Jesus. Jesus says the only requirement for you to come close to me is just to open yourself up to him. He invites you to find rest in him as a gift, not as something you buy or gain access to. Notice his invitation. Uh, secondly, I think in this passage, notice to his audience, who is he talking to? All you who are weary and burdened. Not the unrepentant, like in verse 20. Not the unbelieving Pharisees and religious leaders in the next chapter. There is actually no invitation to them to come to him. If you have a burden, if you're weighed down, then you are uniquely qualified to come to Jesus. If you have been tired of, from lockdown, if you have family pressures and hurts, if you have a fear of failure, whatever else your burden is, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And now we want to understand, right? Jesus is not saying, come to me for an easy, carefree life. He has not said that in our previous chapters. He's already made this clear. His followers are called to a deeper righteousness, he said on the Sermon on the Mount. And he offers not cheap grace, but costly grace. The Christian life is hard work. Our bodies do grow weary. And yet, verse 29 says, you will find rest for your souls. And how does this rest come? This rest comes when Jesus says, we take his yoke upon us and learn from him. Now, what's the yoke? Um, most of us have never worked on a farm or lived. So here's a picture of a farmer. And can you see that crossbar that sits between the two oxen? Uh, that's a yoke. That's a yoke. It's this heavy crossbar that, that uh, ties the ox together, oxen together and lets them be able to do the work of plowing a field, uh, things that we would use tractors for today. That's the yoke. And so Jesus is using this Metaphor, this picture, this image. But what we often fail to realize when we read this passage is that we are already carrying a yoke. Without Jesus, we are already under a burden, right? Whether it's a burden of man-made expectations, a burden of maybe your bucket list that you're trying to live by, but you, you can never achieve anyways. Whether it's the burden or the yoke of all kinds of worries, these burdens, they torture our minds. They, they, they weigh us down. And so actually Jesus has a kind of ironic statement here. Take my yoke instead, which is easy. 
Uh, in verse 30, it says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Uh, the word easy here, um, that's what I, it says here in the NIV. Uh, the word easy shows up somewhere else, actually, in the Bible. I wonder if some of you remembered uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 32, where it said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, right? Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. That word be kind to one another, that is the same word that appears here when it says my yoke is easy. Can you see? Jesus is saying that my burden, it's actually an easy burden. It's actually a kind burden, right? Whoever heard of a kind, easy burden? Me, Jesus. His yoke it's a non-yoke. His burden, it's a non-burden. And you have a fellowship with him. It's like carrying a helium balloon and being weighed down by one. When he embraces you, it's like a drowning man who grabs the burden of a life jacket. Friends, his yoke is easy. When you and I come to Jesus again and again, we do not pick up a burden. We are swapping Yokes. We're putting off the man-made yoke for Jesus's yoke. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German uh, Christian, he put it this way in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, in discipleship and following Jesus, people come from the harsh yoke of their own laws under the gentle yoke of Jesus Christ. To take it up, Jesus loves to care for you. He longs to carry you. He cannot help doing anything else. This is what comes from his very heart. This is the real Jesus, right? That's what he says. Notice, look, notice his heart. Jesus says, you can take my yoke because, verse 29, I am gentle and humble in heart. <clears throat> this first word that's been translated here as gentle, we've actually seen before. Uh, I wonder if some of you remembered last year from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That word meek is the same word here. Or Jesus later in Matthew 21, he describes himself as the king who is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey. Or in, in, in the book of 1 Peter, the apostle says to wives, and encourages them in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, to foster the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Meek, humble, and gentle. That is what is at Jesus' heart. And the second word there in his phrase, gentle and humble. And the word humble we see in, in the book of James. Some of you have heard this in Saturday service or Sunday morning. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? It's not the stars and celebs, but the, the socially unimpressive that God gives grace to. And the point in Jesus saying humble here, I am gentle and humble, is that he's saying he's at our level. He is accessible. He's the kind of king that will walk among his people. I think if we're honest, many of us, we're not used to this kind of, this kind of Jesus. Maybe you and I, uh, maybe you've grown up in a, in a rules-heavy home, okay? All your life, even as a Christian, even as growing up with Christian parents, maybe you've just heard, do this and do that, you know? Maybe you've been criticized for never measuring up, 
So maybe when you think of Jesus, you've got this kind of warped view of him, some kind of harsh, distant person, arms folded. That's not Jesus, right? Because what does he say? I am gentle and humble in heart. As an author, Jane Ortland, he has a book, a whole book on this called Gentle and Lowly. And he says this, he says, Jesus, he is not trigger happy. He is not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture that is most natural to Jesus is not a a pointed finger, but open arms. Where an unclean man says, if you're willing, cleanse me. Jesus says, I'm willing. Right? His deepest desire is to bless the broken. Remember the special word he said to the paralyzed man. What was it? He said, take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Right? These are words of assurance and courage. When he looks at the crowds, his heart swells with compassion. When he thinks of Jerusalem, when he sees his dead friend Lazarus, tears well in his eyes. Jesus is the kind of guy who sees pain in others and it draws out his own tears. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the sinners, there we see his heart, his love for us on full display. Hebrews 12, chapter 2 says this, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Can you see, friends? Jesus, as he hung there, as he was stripped naked, as he was lashed on his back, as his hands were pierced, as he takes our yoke of sin and death, our burden of shame and guilt on the cross, he had joy set before him. His heart yearned for those who would come to him. It was not just nails that held him there. It was his love. It was his gentle and lowly heart, his very heart. There is no display that is greater that of his heart than at the cross. And so, friends, I want to argue, if you want to go deeper into following Jesus, then you need to know and understand his heart. <clears throat> if you cannot see his heart for you, that it's gentle and humble, you may never go deeper into following Jesus. You may only know a scam version a cheapened version of Jesus. The Bible is clear. Look, one day every knee bows before Jesus. He is perfect in power and authority. One day he rides in with a sword in his hand to conquer. And yet first and foremost, from his very words, his heart for you is gentle and humble. And I think this reflects and this spills into how we do church, I think. How can we ever grow as a church? If we fail to see his heart, if we fail to live it out, this gentleness, this humbleness, if we make our church all about performance, duty, achievement, that's not in Jesus' heart. When our hearts are moved by power and pride, being better than the other person, that is not in Jesus' heart. And We miss his heart and we miss the lonely among us, those who are outcasts, those who are lost, 
and those who are loved by Jesus. So, friends, don't fall for the scam, Jesus, all right? Here is the real Jesus. He shames the unrepentant. He knows the Father's heart, and he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so the final obvious question is this. Will you come to him? Will you stop chasing elsewhere? Will you bring all your burdens to him? Will you exchange your heavy yoke with his light yoke? Your burdens with his light and easy one. Come to him. Learn from him. And follow him. Let's pray.